Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today we're going to talk about the connections between autism and people and animals. The CDC's most recent data in 2016 is that approximately 1 in 54 children in the United States is diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. That's 1 in 34 boys and 1 in 144 girls. Most people know that there's been a greater recognition of this condition and the importance of early diagnosis. Another very interesting thing is that many important historical figures and great thinkers are believed to have or had milder cases of autism, like Asperger's syndrome. These people have a different way of thinking that can be beneficial or advantageous. As an example, in the book and movie The Big Short, a physician and inventor, Michael Burry, who has Asperger's syndrome, correctly predicted the real estate collapse. His particular analytical mind allowed him to make investments which paid off in a huge fashion when the crash occurred. Now, regarding animals, many of us have seen service animals at work helping people who may have autism. But there's a lot more to animals and autism than that. So I'm very happy to welcome to the show Dr. Temple Grandin. Dr. Grandin is a researcher and associate professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She herself has autism, and she has written and lectured about how having autism allowed her to obtain a deeper understanding of the minds of animals. Dr. Grandin is a world-renowned spokesperson for autism and humane livestock handling. Welcome to the show, Dr. Grandin. It's great to be here. Dr. Grandin, can you go back to when you were a youngster and tell us when you became aware that you thought differently from other kids? And also, when did you begin to realize that you had a special insight into the minds of animals? Well, when I was a real little kid, I didn't know that I thought differently. I'm an extreme visual thinker. Everything I think about is a picture. And in the HBO movie, Temple Grandin, it shows exactly how I think. It's sort of like a bunch of PowerPoint slides flashing up. And I thought everybody thought in pictures. And I thought that all the way through my 20s. And then I started learning that other people did not think in pictures. So in the very first work I ever did with cattle, I looked at what they were looking at. And other people didn't think to do that. So why would other people not look at what cattle were looking at? Like maybe a coat on a fence might make them stop and not go through a chute. And, and then gradually I learned that other people don't think in pictures. And one of the first things you need to do to understand an animal is get away from verbal language. It's a sensory-based world. Mm-hmm. What is it seeing, hearing? Uh, a lot of animals communicate with the tone of their voice. High-pitched sounds tend to be distress. And now there's been research that shows there's different kinds of thinking. So uh, tell us about that. Tell us about the styles that people have of thinking in a very broad sense. Basically, uh, in my book, Animals in Translation, I talk about how visual thinking helped me understand animals. But there's now been research that shows there are different styles of Thinking, and I cover some of that in my book, The Autistic Brain. And scientifically, I'm called an object visualizer. Object visualizer. Everything I think about is a picture. Absolutely can't do algebra. Now, the kinds of fields that us visual thinkers are good at, anything to do with animals, skilled, skilled the trades would be another, uh, another big area, building things. 
because you can see how something works. Now, another kind of thinker is a mathematical thinker. This is your Silicon Valley programmer. Half the programmers probably have autism. They think in patterns. Mm. It's actually scientifically called visual spatial, but it's thinking in patterns. This is the kid that might be super good at math, loves patterns and shapes, but he, um, he has trouble learning reading the object visualizer and the visual spatial. And there's now getting to be a lot of research that shows that these uh, types of thinking are real. And then you've got the verbal thinker, where it's all in words. And for a visual thinker, verbal thinking is very, very abstract. I mean, I'll have a verbal teacher say to me, what, how do I handle autistic kids in the classroom? Well, I can't answer that. Because I don't know if you're dealing with a three-year-old or a teenager or maybe a fourth grader that's, um, you know, got sensory processing problems. I, I have to have more information in yeah. order to be able to explain what to do with that kid. Verbal thinking tends to overgeneralize and think in much broader conceptual ways. So the first step is you've got to understand that different kinds of thinking exist. And then you can see how the skills complement each other. The iPhone. It's easy to use because Steve Jobs was an artist, so it's easy to use. But the mathematically trained engineers had to make that iPhone work. I see. So tell us the ways animals and people with autism can think alike. Well, as a person with autism, I'm an extreme visual thinker. Now, I want to emphasize not all people with autism are extreme visual thinkers. You also have the mathematical thinkers and the word thinkers. But people with autism tend to not be mixtures of the kind of thinking. They either tend to be a visual thinker, a math thinker, or a word thinker. And the skills are going to be more uneven. Well, an animal doesn't live in a verbal-based world. So if you think in pictures, that's one of the ways that animals are going to think. And I discussed that in Animals in Translation. And one of the things I discussed is a horse that was terrified of black cowboy hats. He'd been abused by a guy wearing a black cowboy hat. White hats were fine. You see, it was a visual picture that was associated with um, having alcohol thrown in his eyes during a veterinary procedure. But it's a visual association. Or they might get a sound association. The sound of this tractor, it brings me food. The sound of another vehicle means trouble. They can make those kind of associations. The sensory-based world not a verbal-based world. Can the faculty of thinking in pictures be learned or be trained so someone can be doing it more naturally? Well, I think it can be trained to a certain extent, but you're not going to take me and turn me into an algebra expert. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Right. Uh, the first step is realizing that different thinkings are, are actually there. And so I have a little test that I do. Think about church steeples. How do they come into your mind? Now, the visual thinker starts naming off the churches. A real verbal thinker will go pointy thing, and it's very vague, and they might see in their mind's eye just a very vague. And there's a few people with Fantasia that have got no picture at all. But most people get kind of a more general, vague church steeple. Now, why am I using that for my test question? Because you're not looking at it when I ask the question. Um, if I ask you about your own dog, you're going to be able to see. Most people can see that. Um, and it's something that's out in the environment that everybody would see. And when I started asking this question, and I remember, I'll never forget the first time I asked it to a speech therapist, and she just said, pointy thing, and just made a little drawing like a triangle. That's all I see. I go, wow. 
there really is different kinds of thinking. And I came to that realization long before I discovered the research. I discovered that when I was writing The Autistic Brain. Uh, but I go, oh, not everybody does think in pictures the way I do. Yeah. But I didn't know that until really start to understand that until getting into the 80s. I was past my 20s by that point. Yeah. So you mention the animal or the horse that might be scared of a person in a in a black hat. Yes. We had a dog, Susie, who was terrified of helium-filled balloons. She would get so nervous, and once on a walk, she spotted one of those mylar balloons floating way up in the sky, and it totally freaked her out. What do you make of that? Well, she had some kind of experience because Mark, my assistant, um, had a little dog that was terrified of hot air balloons. And she'd see one miles away, and she'd freak out. Now, I'm going to think what happened is a hot air balloon came down near the house and revved up its burner and was really scary. Um, If something happened in the past with hot air, with balloons, it scared that dog. And also, balloons have really erratic motion. So that's an example of a fear memory. But the thing that was interesting about... um, about the dog that was afraid of the hot air balloons, the big balloons, like where people ride in the basket kind of balloon, is that she started to get afraid of other things. And I was trying to figure out why was she afraid of a gasoline tanker on the highway? Why was she afraid of a street light? You know, she was never afraid of those things before. So I sat down with Mark and we made a list of the stuff that she was afraid of and a list of other things that were round that she was not afraid of. Yeah. Well, street light, then stop light. She was okay with traffic lights. She was okay with a round light that was on the pizza place. And so I started taking this list, and then in my mind's eye, I'm going, now, okay, now what about that gas tanker that she was afraid of? And I said, was it, was that, were you at the bottom of the hill, and was the gas tanker on the top of the hill? And if the dog was in the front seat of the car the back end of that tanker would be a round object against the sky. So what I finally figured out is the dog had now become afraid of round things against the sky. I see. A street light lamp end is round against the sky. Uh, The tanker end is round against the sky. Traffic lights in Fort Collins have a black metal panel behind them. So that's round against a black rectangle. And the pizza globe light was against a brick wall. So it was round against the sky. This fear memory had sort of generalized, but in a visually specific way. We're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Temple Grandin right after the break. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. 
It's true. People who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. back to animals today we're speaking with dr temple grandin dr grandin at the wildlife sanctuary in kingsburg colorado which is a really wonderful large sanctuary for rescued wild animals including big cats and bears they have a long elevated walkway way above the animals where people can view the animals from above and the way it was explained to us was that in contrast to viewing captive animals at zoos which can be very threatening to animals because you're right at their ground or eye level the animals don't consider people above them as any sort of threat so they remain calm and indifferent do you agree with that well you got to think about it there's no aerial predators for tigers but then you take an animal like a gerbil that's an animal that when it lives in the wild there's a threat from hawks and stuff getting it and one of the reasons why gerbils do so much digging is they want to hide from the hawks that do not exist in the kid's bedroom that's why you've got to give the gerbil a place to hide but there's nothing that's ever attacked a tiger from the sky, you know, unless it was a man-made plane. But there was no natural thing that ever did that. So for what, so for those animals, yeah, the overhead catwalk is, is fine. In fact, I've actually been to that sanctuary. And then also getting back to the fear memories, I worked with the Denver Zoo years ago with Nancy Erlbeck. She was the nutritionist for the zoo, and we trained antelopes to stand and have um, injections and blood tests and veterinary stuff. And one of the things we learned is a veterinarian who in the past had shot them with the dart gun could never work with our trained antelopes. You could bring strange people in off the street, but they knew this guy. It didn't matter how he was dressed. They knew him. And he could never, he could never work with them. And the animals are very, very specific in the things they 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 tolerate. Uh, so some other antelopes that we worked with, they had actually taken baby antelopes and they could do a, a juggler, uh, go up there and put a needle in the juggler, and the antelope was just fine with it, didn't mm. care. Yeah. But then the student goes, oh, well, I almost want to do an intermuscular shot. She gave it an intermuscular shot in the shoulder and it went berserk. You see, it had learned that the needle in the juggler equals food treats, Needle in the shoulder was something new, so um, he went berserk. You see, it's very specific. Yeah. It's extremely specific. Another thing we learned with the antelopes is that small objects like coffee cups, you didn't have to habituate it to a new coffee cup, but something large, like a large che- ice chest that they put the stuff in, that um, a new ice chest, uh, yeah, you needed to habituate them to that. They were going to freak out over that. But the animal is very specific in what it gets afraid of. It'll learn certain thing is safe, like maybe a gas-powered vehicle is safe and a diesel-powered vehicle is trouble. Get back to its previous experiences. Right. Dr. Grin, a few years ago, we had Dr. Gregory Burns on the show, and many people are familiar with his work oh, doing MRIs. His work. Yeah, yes. he does MRIs on dogs. 
Yeah. So you've been following his work. What do you find most interesting or surprising about it? Well, it shows that animals have emotions, and a lot of those emotions are similar to people. And I'm a very big fan of the Jack Panskep emotional systems, which are described in detail in one of my books, um, Animals Make Us Human. And these are emotional systems that all mammals have got, things like fear, anger, separation, distress. You know, the dog's home alone and it's chewed the house up. Right. Then you have seek, the urge to explore. Then you have sex. Then you have the mother young nurturing, licking behavior. And then you have play. And all animals and people have these systems. And I think it's kind of crazy that you still have people today in scientific journals discussing whether or not animals are conscious. This just blows my mind yeah. that this would be seriously discussed in a top neuroscience journal. But that's going on right now. And what I think it gets down to is people who think in words, I think they may have a difficult time uh, kind of understanding how an animal could think since they don't have words. Now, if you think in pictures, to question whether or not animals are conscious and think, I'm going, well, that's just silly to question that. There's really a big difference between somebody who's a highly, highly verbal thinker and somebody that is more sensory-based in how they think. I know you use the phrase bottom-up thinking. Can you explain yeah. what that means? Well, bottom-up thinking is, is you use specific examples to create concepts. Okay, let's take a look at example. When I was a little kid, and I had to figure out that a dog and a cat were a different animal. When I first started doing this, I sorted by size because there were no small dogs in the neighborhood. I didn't know what small dogs were. Most of the dogs were like Airedale, Lab, German Shepherd, uh, Golden Retrievers, and they're bigger than cats. But then when a dachshund came into the neighborhood, well, she's the same size as a cat. Why is she not a cat? So now I had to find features that a dachshund shares with other dogs, such as barking, the shape of her nose, and how, what she smells like. But bottom-up thinking is everything's done by specific example. And then the more specific examples you get, you can then start sort them into um, finer categories. You know, you can sort dogs into what they were bred to do originally would be another way you could sort dogs. But making categories, that's the beginning of concept formation. But it's done by specific examples. So when I was a real little child, the only dogs I had seen was a golden retriever, and we had a golden retriever. The next-door neighbors had an Airedale. Another neighbor had a German Shepherd Husky. We used to just call it the police dog. Then there was two Labrador retrievers, and, um, and that was it. And then the dachshund came into the neighborhood. And, and, and that was the first time I'd seen a small dog. What should dog guardians know about the way dogs think that will allow them to connect better with them or train them more effectively or love them more deeply? One of the biggest problems we got today is dogs are spending too much time home alone. When I was a child, all the dogs ran loose in the neighborhood. The downside was getting hit by cars. But the upside is we just didn't have behavior problems. Puppies chewed stuff, but adult dogs did not eat up a house because they were left home alone. Or they were just miserable left home alone. The dogs had a dog social life. They had lots of social life with people. You know, we'd play with the neighborhood dogs, and we were taught when we were a child, uh, don't only play with dogs that you know. But these dogs were socialized. We've got a lot of problems today with unsocialized animals. And some of the worst animals, like to fight other animals, are animals reared alone. 
I've seen this in horses, I've seen it in cattle, I've seen it in dogs. But we've got a lot of dogs that don't get a chance to do doggy social life. And so to give a dog a good social life today requires a lot of work. Now, one of the things that's happening now with COVID is all the, the dogs have been walked more than they've ever been walked. I think dogs probably think COVID's wonderful. Of course, yeah. dogs don't know what COVID is. But if they did, they would think it was wonderful because they're getting more walks than ever, and they're getting more and more attention from people. But there's an awful lot of pets today that are home alone when the, when the uh, people are away at work, and the dog is miserable. I mean, I've heard them barking and whining in the subdivisions, and then you hear about this dog ate up somebody's couch. Then that's separation distress. Right. Okay, don't go away. More with Dr. Temple Grandin right after the break. Animals Today fun facts for today are about prairie dogs. Despite their name, prairie dogs are not dogs, but members of the rodent family, like squirrels. They grow to be between 12 and 17 inches in length, and they weigh between 2 and 4 pounds. Prairie dogs are very social rodents that live in huge underground burrows called towns, where they can be tens of thousands of prairie dogs, and their tunnels can travel for miles in every direction. Prairie dogs are very affectionate towards each other and will spend a lot of time grooming each other. They will also touch noses when they approach each other like a little kiss. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Temple Grandin. Just before the break, we spoke about separation anxiety when dogs are left alone, unattended and bored and not stimulated. Dr. Grandin, as we all start to resume our former lives, we're going to be going back to work or school, and that might mean our animals are left alone in the house for the first time in months. What are some ways to minimize the separation anxiety some pets might experience? I think there are some genetic differences in dogs. I mean, we have bred dogs to be a highly social animal that wants to be around people. We've bred them that way, and they're different from wolves. But there are you know, some genetic differences one thing you can do with puppies is train the puppy that he needs to be able to spend some time away from you without, you know, getting upset over it. You can train puppies to do that. But there's some dogs that don't handle being home alone, so maybe they need to go to doggy daycare. Yeah. They need lots of time in the dog park. They need more time with people. Maybe you leave the dog off with the, the next-door neighbor. I worked with a lady named Camille King on Thunder Shirts, the pressure garment for dogs. And do they actually work? And Camille, uh, I helped Camille design the experiment, but she did all the work. And basically what she did is she left the different dogs alone in a kennel um, with a TV camera watching them and a heart rate monitor on them. And uh, the, the experimentals got to wear the Thunder shirt tight the way it's supposed to be. And the controls had clothes on, but they were loose. And what the Thunder shirt that was tight did, it reduced the behavior of constantly staring at the door, waiting for Camille to come back, and it did lower the heart rate in dogs that were not on medication. But the thing is, we've bred a hyper-social animal, and, um, and then, it, then it's left home alone all day. Uh, that it's not, It doesn't do very well doing that. Right. Why do dogs like to sniff everything on walks? What are they thinking about? Well, I call it checking the P-mail. They know who's been there, friend or foe, is there somebody around they might want to mate with. It's the gossip at the local coffee shop when they smell all that stuff. 
Yeah, and they enjoy it, right? Yeah. I see people out walking their dogs, and the dog's trying to check his P-mail, and he's just jerked away from it. Let him have a little bit of doggy social life. We have draconian leash laws here in, in Fort Collins. That's why we got lots of dogs on tape measure long leashes, because uh, you can't, even if you're with it, you can't have it off the leash except in certain designated places. And and dogs don't have they don't have time to socialize with other dogs. And to give a dog a good doggy social life is going to require some work. Do you communicate with people who design and run animal shelters, and particularly regarding making them less stressful for the dogs and cats there? Well, let's, let's look at simple things. Dogs and cats need to be opposite ends of the building. And the best thing that you can do for dogs is that volunteers come in and take every dog out every day for 45 minutes of a good time. And I had a student named Krista Coppola, and she... Um, did her, did her thesis on that, basically. Dogs came into an animal shelter. The controls got stuck in a cage. The experimentals got to have 45 minutes of fun with Krista. And when the uh, uh, salivary cortisol stress hormone was measured the next day, it was lower. But the problem is they didn't keep doing it. single most important thing you can do for the dogs is have volunteers come in and give every dog a good time for 45 minutes a day. Then somebody says, well, can I make it 30? Could I make it 20? Well, I don't think you can make it five minutes. Let's, let's put it that way. But dogs need people. And animal shelters that have a good volunteer program, most of the barking will stop. Yeah. The constant barking. Those are two simple things an animal shelter can do. Uh, then there's other things like keeping it clean, obviously. And the noise level down, I assume, right? Well, if they don't bark, then you don't have the noise level. The problem is materials that are easy to clean are noisy. And it's important to keep the cats socialized and mentally stimulated as well, right? Well, I want to get the cats away from the dog kennel. Something simple. Let me ask you about animal language. There are some pets, like birds or dogs, who are taught to have a vocabulary of hundreds of words. What do you think is happening in the minds of animals who understand human language? Well, they've just learned to associate certain sounds they make with certain things. There's a dog named Chaser. I think he knows like 200 toys. Yeah, they can learn the words, and they just associate a certain sound that they learn with a certain thing, like a ball or, you know, a, some other toy. It's, it's, uh, it's still sensory-based. I, I forgot to mention my students' playset experiment. common problem you have when you're riding horses is um, you go, well, that horse saw that, that you know, a beach umbrella or whatever it was, you know, a hundred times before. He never threw a fit, and now today he's, he's uh, gone berserk over it. And so we decided to look at the orientation of an object. So Megan Corgan, my student, went out and bought a place, a plastic place at Walmart that's uh, got a little slide in the swing like for three-year-old kids, trained horses to just walk by it, just on one side of it only, just one side of this place set, walk by it. And after about 18 times they walked by it, then she rotated the playset 90 degrees. And this playset looks very different when you rotate it. And the horse thought it was a new object. Oh, interesting. Thought it was a new object. Now think about it. Like if I was doing a video conference with me, with you, and then I tell, I'm holding my stapler right now. Now if I look at my stapler from a side view, it looks very different than if I look at my stapler head on. Same thing with a bike. A side view versus a front view of a bike. And the horse, um, uh, you know, treated, we did all of this at a slow walk. 
but I'm pretty sure that if it not had been done at a slow walk, Megan would have been dumped off that, that horse would have slammed on the brakes and dumped Megan into the play set. We did everything at a slow walk so it was very safe. And the horse just did signs like, you know, nostrils flaring, uh, you know, putting the ears up, looking, you know, learning to it. But it definitely knew it was different when it was rotated. Now, we'd look at a kid's play set and go, yeah, that's a kid's toy. You see, that's thinking about it more abstractly. We wouldn't be afraid of a play set because it was rotated. Yeah. Animal thinking is much more specific. Then you take other objects, and I'm a visual thinking thinker. Let's say we have round garbage cans. They're going to look the same rotated. They will look exactly the same. Where some other kind of object um, looks totally different rotated. Let's take a saddle rack, for example, with no saddle on it. Let's say you had a saddle rack out there. That looks totally different head-on than it does sideways. You see, when you think about it visually, even a saddle itself. How about audible fears? We were out walking our dog at the park the other day, and there was a couple kids playing baseball, and my dog was so fearful of the sound of the ball hitting the bat. What was going on there? Is that a trigger of familiar sound heard in the past? Right, first of all, I'm going to ask you, is your dog a rescue? Yes. Okay. Now we don't know the handling history. That sound of the bat may have been associated with something really bad that happened to that dog before you got it. One of my book agents had a dog who was terrified of men wearing baseball hats. You see, they'll, they'll uh, tune into some obvious feature that the person has or sound. And maybe something really horrible was happening to the dog when a similar sound like that baseball bat occurred. And that's an auditory fear memory is what that is. And since it's a rescue, you don't know why. Now, if I, in a lot of situations, you can figure out why. Now, you take the black hat. I found that if I took the hat and I laid it on the ground, it was less scary. Then as I raised the hat closer, closer and closer to my head, it got more and more scary. Another way to um, turn off fear is turn on seek. And, a tr and I didn't get a chance to try this with a black hat horse, but I wish I had. would be to tie a 50-foot string to the hat and leave it on the ground and then drag it slowly, get the horse to follow it. So you turn on the seek system of Jack Pant Skep's emotions, and that tends to shut fear off. And that's one of the reasons why clicker training can often be very, very useful with abused horses. Uh, because the horse's brain is looking for the click. That's the exploration, the seek. That helps to shut the fear off. But something happened in your dog's previous life that's associated with that type of sound or a very, very similar sound. I heard in one of your lectures, you spoke about our companion animals are really sensitive to certain tones. You know, sometimes when we are talking to our dogs or cats, we might use a high-pitched, squeaky baby voice. Do our animals like that? No, high-pitched squeaky is often an alarm thing in most animals. And just talk quietly, you know, nice kitty. Just talk quietly. The other little tip is don't pat animals. Stroke them. Stroke them. They, they, um, patting's interpreted as hitting. Stroke them. Make it feel like the mother's tongue licking them. You want to stroke them, not pat them. I see people doing that all the time with their horses. And there's been some new research that if you're riding a horse, just scratch him on the withers. Because you pat them, they interpret that as hitting. It's not interpreted as something as something nice. Oh, interesting. So we see pictures of kids hugging a dog and looks so sweet and the kid loves it. Do dogs like to be hugged? 
Well, you see, in people, hugging is lovey-dovey. But in dogs, when another dog puts its paw on the shoulder, that's dominance. You see, the, the, all the animals and people have got the same emotional systems. They fear, anger, separation, distress, seek or explore, sex, mother, young, nurturing, and play. But it's wired differently in the dog. Where for us, hugging around the shoulders is lovey-dovey. For dogs, it's dominance. So they accept it, and they're okay they with it, but it. They tolerate and it. And if you look at pictures of kids hugging dogs on the Internet, you'll see the mouth is clamped shut. Not relaxed. You know, there's a very relaxed yeah. kind of open mouth you can have in a dog, not panting really hard, but just a relaxed open mouth, a little bit extension of the tongue. You usually won't see that when the kid is hugging it across the shoulders. Now, you hug it further back, it probably won't trigger that, that uh, instinctual uh, behavior pattern. Okay, one more commercial break. We'll be right back with Dr. Temple Grandin. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. 
an adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. We're speaking with Dr. Temple Grandin. Before the break, we spoke about visual fear memory and audible fear memory. Talk about the fear memory of touch or the way something feels to the animal. Well, a common one in horses is different bits. I've run into this a bunch of times, and uh, the horse will behave just fine with one bit, and he's going crazy with another bit. And again, this gets back to a fear memory associated with a type of bit. And a real common one is jointed bits. If the bit is jointed, then it's bad. And if it's all solid, like those Western bits that are solid one piece, it's good, because there's some really awful bad bits that people buy that really hurt the horse's mouth that happen to be jointed. Now, I want to make it very clear. I'm not saying jointed bits are bad, but they're fine as long as the horse hasn't been abused with them. But if a horse has been abused with this really awful twisted wire jointed bit, then they tend to be afraid of all snaffle jointed bits. And a real simple way to fix this is simply to use a one-piece solid bit, and that's like opening up a new file folder in the horse's memory. That's an easy one to fix, real, real easy to fix. If I can just remove the feared object, and it's, I can't get black hats out of the world, but I can get the bit he doesn't like out of the world. Another one is the very common horse bucks when you change gates. Walk to a trot, trot to a canter. Now think about it. A saddle feels different at different gates. Yeah. So if you want to try this out for yourself, get a, put a backpack on, put a bunch of stuff in the backpack so it's kind of heavy. Okay, now you walk around with it and you feel what the backpack is like. Then you jog with the backpack. Then you run really fast with the backpack. It's going to feel different at each one of those different running speeds. You suddenly have introduced something new. And if the horse starts to switch his tail, that's your warning sign he's getting ready to buck. I want to just, you start to see him get nervous. Then you need to stop. Is that because he doesn't like the feel of what's on him? It's because you suddenly, you see, novelty is both scary and attractive. Novelty is attractive if an animal can approach it. Like you put, uh, let's take this play set that we had. If you put that play set in the middle of the arena, horses will come up to it. You put it in the field and horses and cattle will both come up to it. Novelty is attractive when you can voluntarily approach. It's scary when you shove it in the face. 
Well, the problem is, is that when you change gates, it's a totally new feeling that that saddle has. And so you change gates and you see him switch his tail. That's a sign he's starting to get upset. Then let's stop that before he bucks. And we gradually realize it feels different at each gate, so slowly train him. Because then you can get a horse that, when I was in high school, I got a horse that bucked when you changed gates. I didn't know how to fix them. Now I know how to fix them. You have to desensitize the horse to the well, new feeling? Well, you know what feeling? I would do? Yeah, I could desensitize him. I could desensitize him, but the problem is if he's really bad on it, he's very difficult to completely fix. What I would have done with this horse, I didn't know that when I was young, is he was a Western horse. I had a full set of really nice English tech. I would have converted him to English, and I would have gotten a really weird pad to put under the saddle that would feel different. So everything feels different. Now I'm starting with new set of file folders from a sensory standpoint. And I break them into it really, really gradual, get used to this English saddle and he'd be fine. It's going to still feel different at the walk, trot, and canter, but I'm starting with a totally new set of feelings. With English tack, maybe with a foam pad that's nubbly, I want something really different. And uh, that can fix it. Or you, or you just maybe switch the saddle pad even. But it's, it, that opens up like a new file folder. Now, the other way to fix it would be to do something like clicker training, which is discussed in Animals Make Us Human, and then the animal is looking for the click, and uh, that tends to help turn off the fear. But the thing, let's prevent this problem. We're training horses. We know that, that the saddle feels different. Okay, we, we, we go to the trot, and he, you see the tail start to switch. I'd stop. The tail starts to switch, that's your warning right before he blows up. How about the visual and audible memory fear that some animals have with flags? Well, that's a big one for scaring animals. Well, put a flag on the fence where your horse can walk up to it. Put a flag somewhere where a dog can just put some flags hanging somewhere where a dog can just go up and investigate them. Maybe they're flapping, but you're not shoving them in his face. Yeah. Those flags might be 50 or 60 feet away, and the dog... It can go up to them. Novelty is attractive when they can voluntarily approach, and it's scary when you suddenly shove it in their face. Dr. Temple Grandin, any final thoughts you want to share with my listeners? Well, I hope I've gotten you to think about a sensory-based world, a world of sight, sounds, tone of voice, touch. It's sensory-based, not word-based. And I've talked to horse trainers that were really, really good at training horses, and they just sort of get in tune with the horse. And then I, then I said, now, how do, you, how do you know that you're in tune with the horse? And he said, well, I see the nostrils flare, then I know it's upset. Puts its head down, I know it's calm. You know, I want to get you to enter a sensory-based world, try to leave the word, word-based world as much as you can, and I think that's going to really help you with your animals. And, of course, I'm a shameless book promoter, so you might want to read Animals in Translation and Animals Make Us Human. Very good. Dr. Temple Grandin, thank you very much. Great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning into the show. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.